0: Leviton, and this is episode 19 of The Tell. Since I was a child, I've been dreaming of sham trials. That's my name for it. It's a Sham trial is a situation where you're accused usually by some authority or angry mob, um, and you have to make your case. So as a kid, these dreams took place at school. Teachers would accuse me or other kids. Um, And the strange thing about these dreams is that I was never falsely accused. No one was ever lying about me. They were always accusing me of things I'd actually done, but things that I thought were right or okay. Um, So when this would happen, I would have a few options. One was to lie and deny that I'd done the thing which I never wanted to do in the dreams, uh, that like lacked integrity in my mind. So the next option was to be respectful and to imagine maybe they would understand and to try to explain it to them, why it was okay whatever I'd done um, and why they had it backwards, right and wrong. Um, when I would do this in my dreams, they would not be listening. You know, they they would have no interest in hearing my case, and I would become agitated, and eventually I would crack, and I would start insulting them and calling them fools. <laughs> and telling them how superior I was to them. And I would know when I was saying this that I was going to be severely punished for insulting them. So I, I think I used to have these dreams because I was pretty unusual. And, you know, when you're eccentric, especially as a kid, you start to develop this paranoia. You think that, you know, when you're out of step with your society, you kind of always have to look over your shoulder. Like, people want to get rid of you. They won't understand you, and they'll find a way to get rid of you. <laughs> um, so uh, um, my section of my brain that tortures itself with sham trials was activated by these stories of Mitch Moxley and Bassam Youssef telling uh, tales of their strange accusations <laughs> um, and the trials they went through and how they went about making their cases. This is episode 19 of The Tell.
1: So a couple of years ago, I was working as a freelance writer and I was always looking for story ideas. And I got really interested in the world of kidnap and ransom as a topic for story ideas. Um, how this happened was I was on the internet one night and I found an article about a man named Robert Levinson, Uh, He was an American who worked for the FBI and was retired. And in retirement, he was working covertly for the CIA. And on one of his assignments, he was sent to Iran, and he went missing. And it turned out he was kidnapped, but nobody knew uh, exactly who had kidnapped him. And by the time I read this article, he had already been missing for six or seven years, and he was the longest held American captive in history. And he's actually still missing, and nobody knows what happened to him. He's presumed dead. But at, the time, at that time when I read it, there was still some hope that he might be alive. Uh, anyway, in this article was a photo of Levinson, and he was in his 60s or 70s, and he was wearing an orange jumpsuit, and he was shackled. And uh, he had a long, gray beard. And uh, I remember just seeing this photo and being very struck by, you know, just the... Horror of this man's situation. And I know this isn't exactly a profound realization, considering like, what happened in Syria in the years following that. But for some reason, I had never really thought about it. You know what it would mean to be kidnapped, having your life uh, totally taken from you and placed into the hands of people who view it as a commodity or a statement. Not to mention, you know what would happen to your family. So I uh, I got into like a real deep Google wormhole um, reading about kidnappings, and I read a bunch of books about from people who had been kidnapped. Uh Levinson's story had been covered quite a bit, but uh i I found all sorts of interesting things like kidnapping was a is still a global phenomenon that's far worse than most of us probably think it is um, One estimate was that twenty thousand people are kidnapped for ransom every year, but that estimate is drastically low because most people who are freed don't report it um, A newspaper estimated that one point six billion dollars was traded every year in ransoms um and on the periphery of this sort of global problem were all these people that like worked alongside it like you'd have lawyers that would work with families whose relatives have been kidnapped, or you'd have negotiators that would you know negotiate the ransom payment and I also found that there was quite a few security firms that offered these classes that purported to teach you how to prevent and survive a kidnapping. Um, some of them were Totally legitimate, they worked with journalists and people who worked for multinationals in you know countries where this was a risk. Uh, they did kind of classroom work and then there's others that were more sort of backyard ragtag operations. I found one that had a video on YouTube where they took their you know students out into a forest and they tied them to a tree and then put a put a bag over their head and tased them um, <laughs> Anyway, I, in reading this, I was like, this could be a cool story idea if I find the right one. I didn't want to just sit in a classroom, but I also didn't want to be tased. So I was looking I was looking for one that might cut down the middle. And I found it in a company called Risks Incorporated, which was uh, in the Miami area. And it was run by a, a British guy who had worked in, uh, who served in the British uh, military and then had worked in private security for 20 years. And so I, I called him up and uh, you I know, told him, Uh, that I wanted to do this story and he kind of described the class, it was a mix of classroom stuff and some sort of field exercises Uh, and he was all for it. So uh, I pitched the story and then, you know, went down to Fort Lauderdale. So I I was staying in a Motel 6 near the beach and the guy who ran it, his name was Andy Wilson, Um, although on the internet he goes by Orlando if you ever want to Google him. Uh, he he picked me up at the Motel 6 and he was 43, he was a little bit overweight. He had slicked back hair and stubble and he had, uh, I remember he was wearing like wraparound Oakley sunglasses. And so as soon as I get into the car, he kind of launches right in. He's like, my whole thing is I try to teach you how to avoid getting kidnapped. Because most people who get kidnapped, get kidnapped because, you know, they put themselves in dangerous situations. And he, his philosophy was that basically once you've been kidnapped, there's no way of really preparing for it because, you know, your, ha- your life is in the hands of criminals or terrorists. So his emphasis was on avoiding getting kidnapped. Um, I asked him if there was going to be any, like, you know, forest tasing. And he said, uh, he's like, you know, I could, I could tie you up. I could pour water on your face all day. But ultimately, it's not going to prepare you for the real thing. Um, so Andy drives us to a place called Pembroke P- Pines, somewhere in that region, and he's got a, an office space rented. Uh, and We go up there, and there's a big conference table, and there's supposed to be another student in the class, but he's not there yet. So Andy uh, gives me this binder, and in the binder are all these uh, newspaper clippings of articles that he's been quoted in talking about private security. And at the back of the binder, there's a, a number of stories about this scandal that happened in Mexico, where Mexican police were caught uh, teaching their officers how to torture people. And Andy was right in the middle of the scandal because he was the one that was you know, doing the torturing. Um, but he, he tells me, you know, CNN and BBC had written about this, and he tells me, he's like, no, they got all wrong. I wasn't teaching them how to torture, I was torturing them so that they would know what it's like. Because you know, if I can break you with water, like, what do you think the cartel is gonna do with you? So around this time, the second student arrives. And for the purposes of the story, I'll call him Tommy. Uh, he was a really thin guy from Tampa. He had driven there that morning. Um, he was wearing a, like a pastel pink polo shirt and you could smell his cologne like from across the conference table. And as soon as he gets into the room, he reaches into his pockets and he starts pulling out these knives. He's got like a knife on his ankle and he, uh, he says he's got a gun in his glove box. Uh, he told us that he set off a GPS flare when he arrived just in case something happened. And he also said that the class uh, was a Mother's Day gift for his wife. It was around Mother's Day and either this, <laughs> by learning how to avoid being kidnapped. Uh... <laughs> so Andy, um, Andy kind of runs us through the nuts and bolts of personal security, You know, pretty obvious things like you know, be aware of your surroundings, uh, listen to local knowledge, don't associate with criminals, things like that. And then he, op- he gets on his laptop and he starts fiddling around and he turns it around and he's got this slideshow. And the first image in the slideshow is uh, a white SUV with bullet holes like sprayed up the side of it. And in the driver's seat is uh, a man whose head has been just blown off, like completely gone. And then he clicks and there's like a picture of a severed hand. He clicks again and there's a head with bulging eyes, like a severed head. Uh, And this goes on and on and on like I'm I'm not kidding for there's dozens of these that he's showing us to the point where you know I was getting queasy like it was really horrific shit, obviously And uh, so I'm like Andy. What's the point of this? You know, why are you showing this to us? He's like I'm trying to teach you. I'm trying to scare you basically He's like I'm trying to emphasize that you know, this isn't a game. This this is what could happen to you should you get kidnapped. so after that, we, uh, we have our first exercise of the class, um, which is at a mall somewhere on the other side of Fort Lauderdale. And Andy drives ahead, and Tommy and I go in his car. And in Tommy's car, it's just strewn with shit. Like, there's papers everywhere. There's McDonald's bags everywhere. And uh, he starts going into it. He's like, you know, I, I work in uh, real estate, so if uh, I go and pick up five, six checks, you know, I'm a target. And he notices that I'm seeing all this crap in his car. He's like, this is a deterrent. He's like, if people come in here and they see all this stuff, they're going to think, this guy's got nothing. He's got nothing. He's not worth it. He's not worth kidnapping. So um, we get to the mall, and uh, we meet Andy and a JCPenney. And the exercise is going to be we're supposed to follow Andy through the mall uh, to get into the minds of the kidnappers. That, that was the, the logic of it. And so Andy takes off, and as soon as he leaves, Tommy and I are walking through the JCPenney, and this woman comes up to me, and she's like, Michael! Michael, it's you! It's you! And I'm like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not Michael. And she's like, Michael, Michael, it's you! I'm like, no, I'm, I'm Mitch. I'm not Michael. And I'm like, is Andy... Like, what the fuck is going on here? Did Andy send this woman to, like, intercept us so that we would, you know, be confused or something? Anyway, so I eventually shoo her off, and we start walking through the mall, and it was kind of crazy because, like, you know, after that especially, like, my senses were really heightened... And I kept wondering, do people know what we're doing? Is Andy spying on us? Do the security guards know what we're doing? And so, as we're walking through the mall, at one point we kind of happen upon Andy. And oh, first of all, we're walking through the mall, and Tommy right away is acting super suspicious. He, as soon as we're walking, he grabs my hand and starts swinging it like we're, you know, a couple strolling through the mall. <laughs> And then we come across Andy, and Tommy Like jumps into this shoe store, and he picks up a pair of New Balance, and he's like, do you like these shoes? Do you like... He's trying to act like inconspicuous by being more conspicuous, you know? He's like, do you like these shoes? I really like these shoes. Should I buy them? And then... Uh, we continue on and then eventually Tommy's like, I gotta go get some cheesecake for my wife for later because uh you treating her for dinner. So he splits for for a minute, go gets cheesecake, and then comes back and it's time for him to go. So he goes up, we, we eventually we find Andy, and Tommy goes up from behind and, and grabs him, and he's like, Gotcha. And then Andy Andy berates him and calls him a fucking moron and says he's defeating the whole purpose of the exercise. So <laughs> that was day one of the class. <laughs> on, uh, the second day, we met at a at a martial arts studio uh, for the self defense portion of the class, and uh, Andy arrives carrying this big duffel bag, and he unzips it and dumps out like a hundred knives of different sizes and brass knuckles, and he's like showing me all these knives. He's like he t- he opens this one knife. He's like, if you put this in somebody's neck, it's good night Vienna, he says. So, <laughs> Tommy eventually arrives, and his. Uh, He's pale, and he's sweating, and he's got got bloodshot eyes. And he tells us that the night before, he, uh, he didn't sleep. He said he stayed up all night drinking a bottle of vodka and surfing the internet because he wanted to recreate the sort of heightened sensation of a kidnapping. And then he looks at me, and he's like, you. He's like, I looked you up last night. He's like, I know what you're up to. He's like, I want you to forget my face, forget my name, forget you ever met me. I don't want to be in your article. So then he sits down, and there's a kettlebell on the ground, and he picks it up and hoists it over his shoulder, and he's got a gun in his waistband. And so, I mean, I was a little bit nervous, obviously. And uh, when I had a moment, I took Andy aside. I'm like, Andy, I'm a little bit freaked out here. You know, Tommy comes in. He's been drinking all night. He's got a gun in his pants. He's (laughs) accusing me of something. And he's like, don't worry, I'll take care of it. So he goes and talks to him and comes back a few minutes later. He's like, totally fine. Just change his name in the article, don't worry. And then Tommy comes up to me a little bit later, and he's like, I'm really sorry about earlier, you know? He's like, I just have a really hard time meeting people, and I really wanted you to like me. <laughs> yeah, poor guy. <laughs> so the next, uh, the next day was the, the last day of the class, and we were back in the, in the conference room, and Tommy wasn't there again. So it was just Andy and I, and... Uh, Andy sort of takes me through his, you know, rules of what happens if you get kidnapped. Um, these are things like, you know, don't panic. Um, don't make, don't promise you can deliver a million dollars if you're not going to be able to get it. Uh, try, to, try to humanize yourself to your captors, you know, tell them your name, your family, all this stuff. If they're religious, mention that you're religious and ultimately prepare for a long period in captivity. Um, so as we're wrapping this up, Tommy comes in and he looks pretty much exactly like he did the day before, like he was just a complete mess. And he sits down at the conference table and his shoulders kind of droop and he looks down. And he just starts rambling, like talking about things that make no sense, like one thing to another. Uh, he says, like, you know, in the past six months I've maybe slept like in a cumulative eight hours and then rambled on and on. And at the very end he just goes, I just love this country. And then he gets up and shakes our hands and leaves. He's like, "I got to go back to Tampa," so he leaves. And Andy and I sit there for a minute in awkward silence. And he goes, and Andy goes, "Uh, he's like, he's a nice guy, but you get a lot of that in Florida." <laughs> <laughs> so after after that was the um, the sort of final component of the of a hostage camp where uh, I was supposed to do like a mock uh, ransom exchange or something. So uh, Tommy and I were supposed to do it together, but of course he was gone, so it was just Andy and I. And we get into Andy's car, and the first thing is we go to Miami airport, where I'm supposed to go to a pay phone, and I call this number I've been given, and then somebody at the other end of the phone says, go to this bar, somebody's going to meet you there. So I go to the bar, sit at the bar, and order a beer. And then somebody comes by and drops off a piece of paper that instructs me to go to a pay phone on the other end of town where I make another call. And then the final drop is uh, in a mall somewhere on the outskirts of Miami, where I'm supposed to leave an empty envelope behind a toilet. And so we get to the mall, and I go and find the uh, assigned toilet, and then come back out. And Andy's car is gone. And I'm walking around. I'm like, is this the final exercise? Like, I have to walk across Miami or something to, uh, you know? Anyway, he just moved his car, in fact. And when I got into the car, uh, I opened the driver's seat door, and there was a laminated piece of paper that said I'd now graduated Risk Incorporated you know, Kidnapping Survival School. It's not over. It's not over yet. So, uh, we're, we're, as we're driving back, Andy asked me if there's anything more I'd like to do, and I knew what he was talking about because the whole weekend I had been asking him about, you know, the, what, the Arkansas thing, where you know, is it? How do you prepare for like the fear of being kidnapped or interrogated or tortured or something like that? And uh, so he asked me if if I want to like you know do a, a mild waterboarding, and. Uh, I'm not like this. Is this wasn't some kind of like Johnny Knoxville thing where I wanted to go and tell my friends about it after? And I'm not like a hardcore war reporter. I'm also not one of these people that like I must get the story. But I did feel like if I went to uh, kidnapping survival school and I didn't do anything like this, like the story would be incomplete. So I was like, okay, I'll do it, but we got to agree to some terms. Um, You know, if I if I tapped out, he would stop. Uh, It was only going to be like for a moment to go sort of get a sense of what it's going to be like. Uh, So anyway, we we agreed to the terms, and Andy calls his two assistants, There's one guy named Vic, one guy named Alex, who had been helping him out all weekend. And we agreed to meet at this uh, paintball park that Vic works at uh, in Hollywood, Florida. (laughs) And so we get there, and Vic and Alex are there, and they've gone and picked up a big jug of water. And uh, so there's like a big parking lot, and the paintball park's to the back, and then there's these three picnic tables. Uh, off to the side. So when we get there, those three go off and they're kind of huddled, discussing what they're gonna do. And I've, I was left in my, by myself. And as soon as they left, I was like, this is a fucking terrible idea, like unequivocally, right? The, this guy was showing me you know, decapitated heads two days ago. I barely know him, this has been totally nuts. Like I can see how this could go horribly wrong. And so when they come back, Andy like rushes up and he throws this like sack or something over my head. And Vic and Alex, like, pick me up and start carrying me across the parking lot. And almost immediately, I start hyperventilating. Like, I'm just, I can barely breathe, I'm, you know. And so I asked them to stop. And uh, Andy takes off the bag. And Vic was this really nice guy. And he could see how scared I was. And he was just like, you know, I, don't worry, it's going to be fine. It's just going to be a minute. And Andy just wanted to get over this. He's like, let's go, let's go, let's go. I'm not going to kill you. <laughs> so, so, so Andy goes, like, do you still want to do it? I'm like, okay, let's do it. Let's, do, let's just get it over with. So we walk over to the picnic tables and uh, I lie down and uh, one of them, Vicar Alex, like kind of pinned my arms down and the other one filmed it. And Andy, like it just happened in a flash really, Andy takes a plastic bag and he shoves it into my mouth and then he takes, he had a button up shirt over a t-shirt and he takes that off and throws it over my face and uh, then he starts pouring the water. And, as I'm experiencing, basically, like, you know, at first it, you don't feel anything because the water just soaks into the shirt and then soaks onto the bag. And then it starts hitting your face. And then I started holding my breath. And uh, I held it for a few seconds. And then uh, I breathed in through my nose. And the sensation is like when you jump into a pool head first and, like, water shoots up your nose. It's like that. this kind of burn. And so I immediately tapped out. And Andy, thankfully, took the shirt off and took the bag out, and I was was fine. Um, I I thought, like, the whole thing, all told, from when he, you know, stuffed the bag into my mouth to when it was done, it felt like, you know, a minute or something. But when I watched the video after, it was, like, 11 seconds, basically. (laughs) Um, So after we were done, like, my heart was going crazy, uh, you know, like, crazy adrenaline rush. And uh, I bummed a cigarette off one of those two guys, and I'm smoking, like, trying to calm down. And I started thinking about it, and I was like, "Andy was right all along you know if it was that terrible to do this in a like a relatively controlled situation where I could tap out at any minute and I almost had a fucking panic attack and lasted eleven seconds, like there's absolutely no way of understanding what it would be like to have this happen in real life um, and I was really like struck by that, so you know, I guess his course did have some some value in the end so we walked over to the car, and I got into the car, and Andy was in the driver's seat, and I was in the passenger seat, and I was like, Andy, like, I mean, that, that was fucking terrible. Like, you're right, like, there's no way to understand what's that, you know, like gonna be like in real life. And Andy looks at me, and he's got this kind of weird smile on his face, he's like, mate, that's what I've been trying to tell you. Don't get kidnapped.
2: I was a, a heart surgeon in Egypt for 19 years. I studied and op- uh, worked as a heart surgeon. And uh, like many people in the Middle East, you choose your career because you want to please your parents. Uh, of course, my mom did not uh, force me into it. She just suggested it a lot, <laughs> all the time. And, uh, and this is the thing about uh, Egypt and the Middle East. You, you're only allowed to be one of three things, uh, a doctor, an engineer, or a disappointment. Uh, pretty much like when, if you are like Jewish, you're allowed to be a lawyer, an accountant, a disappointment, a bigger disappointment. So that's, that's basically a lot of similarities between uh, our sides of the family. And uh, what happened was, uh, I was, 2010, uh, I got accepted to start a, a, pa- a pediatric heart surgery fellowship uh, in the greatest city in the world, uh, Cleveland. and. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I, I really couldn't wait until I leave Egypt, and, and nothing can tell you how desperate I was to leave Egypt like being excited to go to Cleveland, and uh, and, uh, and and the thing is, uh, uh, this, uh, thank you. And uh, 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 2011, something happened: uh, uh, the Arab Spring, later what was known as the Arab Clusterfuck, and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but at that time there, there 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 was hope and i uh, uh i like many people you know kind of rooted for the revolution. But the, you realize uh, during the revolution that we're, there were actually two realities happening. The, the reality in, in, in what was happening in real life and the reality that was happening in the state-run media. So in real life, there were people who were revolting, who were protesting uh, to get rid of our uh, dictator who was in office in, for 30 years. 30 years is also known in the Middle East as a very short first term. and. Uh, <laughs> And the thing is, uh, what happened that there was another reality that was happening on television, the state-run media, because they were uh, spreading all kinds of rumors and 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 uh, and conspiracy theories and fake news. So you can imagine our state media as Fox News on steroids, cocaine and ecstasy. And it's kind of like if you have a a stupidity scale from one to Sean Hannity, they were Fox and Friends. It's like it was. (laughs) And uh, and 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 the thing is, they they it, they were like spreading things like, oh, this is no revolution. This was a conspiracy. A conspiracy that was carried out by the CIA, Mossad, Iran, Hezbollah, Hamas. Together, <laughs> we brought war peace together. And um, uh, and 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 that kind of prompted me to do something about it because uh, I was kind of waiting for the papers to arrive from Cleveland. So I was, you know, I was doing nothing. So I started to do these. YouTube videos, you know. I was uh, I was always uh, mesmerized by John Stewart. I always watched John Stewart all my life. So I said, like, I'm gonna do uh, John Stewart like uh, uh, YouTube videos. And I thought, like, I might get maybe I'll get like 10,000 views. And in a, in a few weeks, I got five million views. And I know that five, but, but that's not the story. Like, wait, wait. As, and the thing is, like, and I know, like, now your dog can get five million views. But at that time, 2011, that was a big thing in Egypt, you know, and. Uh, and, 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 and suddenly, every single network in the Middle East wanted me to on its platform. And I, had, uh, I was offered a TV show, which later actually became the biggest TV show in history in the Middle East. And I was called the John Stewart of Egypt, and had 40 million people watching each episode. And I remember that the day that I was signing the, um, the contract for the TV deal, the papers came from Cleveland. And I had a choice to make. I, I should continue to, you know, should I pursue the life I always, I don't, I don't know if I wanted it, but like, you know, I was like prepared for, you know, to fix people's heart and to save lives, or should I pursue a life of empty fame and money? I fucking chose the money, and I said, "Fuck Cleveland," you know. And by the way, "Fuck Cleveland" is what LeBron James says every 30 years. so he says right. And so, uh, so uh, I. I I, I had the show, and, 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 and the thing is, it, it, but my mom was was kind of horrified because th- this, like, m- concerned Middle Eastern mom, you know, be like, yeah, wh- what? You're going to leave medicine? You do comedy? I know, she sounds like a Jewish mother, too. And I... <laughs> The thing is, like everything that I had to do, I had like I was I I was always follow what was imposed on me, you know, like the medicine, the career. So fast forward a year after the first season, I went actually and I met John Stewart, and I was on his show. I was on his show a few times, and a year later he came to my show in Cairo. He was actually in Cairo, like that. Like I hosted him, and that was like that, the 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 highest point of that career. Uh, but the thing is. That was the good side of the story. The bad side of the story is that, that with the rise of the show, there was also the rise of the Islamist, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, that came to power in, in, the, in Egypt. And uh, they didn't like me a lot. Uh, because, you know, how dare you make fun of religious leaders? Uh, you're making fun of Islam. It's like, how dare you kneel to the flag? You are disrespecting our country. It's the same thing. And um, I uh, continued making fun of them. And uh, I found that there was a warrant for my arrest, and uh, I was actually uh, I had to turn myself in, and I uh, I went there, and I was interrogated for uh, six hours uh, in an interrogation room by, by the general prosecutor and prosecutor. Prose- I always like get me- English is my second language, but in Egypt, prosecutor, prosecutor, same thing. So. Um, uh, <laughs> I, and, and, I, and I was there, and I was interrogated for, 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 for six hours, and people asked me, what, what were they asking you about? And I said, like, they said like when I sat down, they said, like, we're going to ask you to explain your jokes. And I said, what? <laughs> uh, is this my torture? <laughs> or are you just Stupid. But the funny thing about that interrogation, I mean, I know it doesn't sound funny, but there was a funny part is that they said, uh, uh, we recorded your episodes and we're going to play it for you. So to see if the accusations stick, I was accused of four accusations. I was accused of uh, insulting Islam, insulting the president, spreading false rumors and uh, disrupting the fabric of society, whatever the fuck that means. And, uh, (laughs) and, 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 uh. Uh, I, but the beginning there is like we are going to play your uh, your episodes for you and they, they got the episodes played on, on CDs, you know, not even decent DVDs, they burn it on fucking CDs uh, and I always said we, we are really stuck in the 90s and uh, and, and, and they, they, they said that we're going to play it uh, for you and you can comment and we're going to pause it and you can comment in the jokes and so but that actually that never happened because like surprise, they tried to play it on this desktop computer uh, using a, a windows 95 operating system uh, <laughs> because we are fucking stuck in the 90s and 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 they were like doing it and i was just like s- s- sitting there waiting for them to play it for like 20 minutes and nothing was happening and and then you know i i i know a little bit about computers so i kind of attempted to help them to play the evidence against me and <laughs> and uh, i um, I, you know I, I tried to ask him questions, you know like, all right, do you have the latest uh, version of media player uh, <laughs> do you have v l c It usually works uh, Why is the keyboard sticky? oh mr prosecutor <laughs> and uh, and uh, and then I, I after six hours i actually I, I got out on bail and I continued to make fun of them and uh, And then there was like a military coup, which is like the most popular military coup in in, in the history. Basically, I say, so we replaced a regime that was abusing democracy with a regime that fucked democracy in the ass. And uh, the military was more sacred than religion. You cannot talk about the military. So I made fun of the military leaders being presidents. And, of course, you cannot make fun of our army. You cannot make fun of the flag. The same thing, deja vu. And... um, uh, uh, I, uh, I I remember, like, I was a national hero during the Islamists because people didn't, didn't like the Islamists. And then overnight, I I turned into the, um, the the enemy of the state. And even people from my family disowned me. Like, they believed that I was actually a traitor. And there was some crazy stories that was published uh, about me in the state-run uh, media. One of them that was published in one of the newspapers saying that CIA, the, that I was being trained by two CIA agents who flew from America after I was reported Recruited by John Stewart, so uh, <laughs> so for all of you guys who are wondering where John Stewart he went again undercover. So uh, uh, and 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 there were people that really believed that actually I, I I received funding from the United States in order to bring down the country using satire, and uh, I, I I I had my show uh, canceled twice. I had even the satellite signal uh, uh, jammed twice, and. Uh, I, I had to uh, escape. I, uh, 2014, November 2014, they were coming for me, and I actually had to escape. So basically, I escaped the dictatorship, and I came here just in time. As you guys starting your own, congrats! Um, <laughs> fuck my life. Um, <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm now I'm here. Uh, I, I live in Los Angeles, and uh, I I. I I'm trying to make it here, so it's it's it's. This is like a, it was a bizarre journey for me because. Um, Seven years ago, I, I shifted careers to something I had never been trained for. I was 19 years, I was in a, in, a, in, a, in a career that I hated, but at least I knew how to fucking operate on someone's heart. Uh, and then f- suddenly I am doing uh, satire and I am doing TV shows and I don't know why Why is it me. I I don't know if it was a chance, uh, was I lucky, I don't know. And then I come here and I have to start... From the beginning, I have to communicate with people with a language that's not mine, and I have to talk to audience that's not my own. And whatever happens, or whatever you did in your life, doesn't really count in Hollywood. Doesn't really count until it's like, oh, yeah, you're a great hero. Yeah, nice. You know, it's just like he it, 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 don't care. He like says you go in and you meet the executives. Ah, great story. Yeah, it's like when if somebody comes here to you and says, like, yeah, I'm from Djibouti. We are the, I was a great hero in Djibouti. It's like where the fuck is Djibouti?
0: heard a live performance by Moonheart of their song, Blow. And before that, you heard stories from Mitch Moxley and Bassam Yusuf. Um, Playing Below Me right now uh, is another version of the Tell theme song, written by a fool. This one, uh, in a minute, we're going to hear Dina Rudin singing it. Um, But in this all-star band we put together, it's Chris Egan on drums, Ian Underwood on bass, I'm playing electric guitar, um, and Matt Botter is on horns. Um, And all this, the podcast and all these versions of the theme song, are produced by Gabriel Galvin at Four Foot Studios in Brooklyn. Um, If you want to find out anything else tell-related, go to thetellstories.com. Try to come see the live series at the Jane Hotel in New York. Um, Otherwise, that's it. This is episode 19 of The Tell.
3: Baby, I like a story But yeah, I witnessed how it unspooled. It's brilliant 'cause because it's written by a fool. Oh yeah, you're quite a character. The boy who broke the rule. Cocky's come up and it's lost his cool. It's brilliant 'cause because it's written by a fool. Aspect. You're the only one who won't understand just what it meant. Oh, yeah, a kid's from certain points of view. Teach us a lesson, they should read it in school. It's brilliant because it's written by